have you all here today. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate that. I just want to take a moment to say thank you to all of you who sent flowers and condolences and chocolate um, in lieu of Sharon's father's passing away suddenly last Sunday evening. Yesterday was a funeral, and it was a testament of his legacy as it was seen clearly passed down to, right down to through his grandchildren. And so again, on behalf of Sharon and myself and our family, we just say thank you. So, got your Bibles ready? Let me begin with this sentence. Good churches are hard to find. You know, I often hear that from people, and it usually puts me in an awkward place, because I pastor one. And I have to admit that there are some churches that actually do lack vital worship, or their pastor doesn't preach faithfully from the Bible. Sometimes the church is racked by dissension, and uh, dissension over petty issues, or sometimes it's filled with legalism. But we live in a culture of what I would call connoisseurs of fine churches, otherwise known as church hoppers or church shoppers. These are people who are continually on a quest to find the church that is spiritual enough for them, and they'll endlessly engorge themselves on the services of the churches that they attend. And it's interesting that they always have a critical word to say afterward whenever the church doesn't meet their standards or their needs and they move on to the next. There's a great saying that says this, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because it's no longer perfect. The reality is, is that as long as the church has people, the church will never be perfect. And it's because we're imperfect. And so the churches we attend will be imperfect too, and the church will fall short of the ideals that we have for them. And this means that finding a perfect church is an impossible task, one that we will never achieve. And yet we persist in trying. We shop for churches as a consumer. We're looking for the one with the most options and the greatest features, the one that will best meet our needs while asking as little as possible in return. In other words, we seek the maximum value for a minimal investment. I just want to show up. However, when it comes to a part of being a bigger faith community, we need to change our attitude and instead do whatever it takes to make it work. And that's, I think, actually the hard part because it actually requires sacrifice when you think about it. It requires patience. It requires determination. And making a commitment to a church is much like making a commitment in a marriage. Hear me carefully because in both cases, instead of bailing at the first sign of conflict, what do we do in a marriage? We are to commit to doing whatever it takes to make this relationship work. And whatever church we go to will require effort on your part to make it work especially for the long term. And therefore, why not make this effort work wherever you find yourself, whether you're physically here this morning or watching from online? So what makes a healthy church? I think many scriptural elements could be listed, especially uh, is a strong commitment to Scripture, really, which is our only authority for faith and practice. But what makes a commitment to Scripture happen? And I think the answer is, 
whether you like to hear this or not, especially in today's culture, is strong leadership. Most churches rise and fall with the quality of leadership. And of course, leaders can't lead without supportive followers. And even with strong leaders and supportive followers, that pervasive sin called human pride often gets in the way and often causes problems. And so with those factors in mind, Peter gives us a prescription for a healthy church, and we find it now in 1 Peter chapter 5. So open up your Bibles as we pick it up. To the elders among you, he says, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who, is also, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over it, over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. I just want to pause on that for a moment. Okay, can I just sort of sit there? Because I know some of you are stewing as soon as we read the scriptures. It's beautiful just how scripture attacks us, isn't it? We'll address this. All of you, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And again, the churches to which Peter wrote were facing intense persecution. We know that already. We've been walking through this series. Last week we talked about the fiery ordeal uh, these trials tested the cohesiveness and the strength of the church, the people, not the building, the people. It's interesting, there's a volleyball tournament here yesterday, and we were doing, uh, uh, we had the family in the atrium, and we were just celebrating my father-in-law, and uh, it, 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 it's, it's phenomenal to hear this when, uh, I think it was Grand Prairie, uh, a, a team from Grand Prairie, or Grandview, I think Grandview was out bunch of young ladies, and my wife just sort of stepped out of the kitchen for a brief moment and overheard them talking, and uh, the, the, the common question we hear is, is this a church? And of course, so a couple of the girls are saying, is this a church? And one girl goes, well, it must be, because they got a funeral going on here. <laughs> and of course, you know, we had the funeral in here, we moved over there, but we had to tear everything down because we're multi-purpose. But everything within me is just screaming, the building is not the church, it's the people, Right? A teaching moment that we have to have for our culture. And so you think about it. You know, here we have a, a church, the churches that Peter are writing to, and they're sandwiched between all these fiery trials. And what he does in communicating to the church is what Peter wants us to understand. And he gives us these words, which is suggesting that strong pastoral leadership is essential for a healthy church, but there is also a word to the rest of the flock. And the whole process that Peter is talking about here is what is arguably the greatest Christian virtue, and it's humility. And if you walk out of here today, the one thing that I want stuck in the back of your head, the one thing, the one word that I want you to walk out of here today with is humility. Humility. 
Out of all of Jesus' disciples, who would have thought that Peter would begin to pen these words when you think about it? To text to the, 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 this text to the leaders of the church. Because when I read this verse, I couldn't help but chuckle. And I remember, <laughs> you know, I'm writing these words in my office. I'm kind of chuckling under my breath. Because you can't avoid the strong sense that Peter is a changed man uh, whose view of leadership has actually been radically transformed when we first met him in the Gospels. If you go back to Matthew chapter 16, who's Peter arguing with and even rebuking? It's Jesus. Jesus spoke of his coming, his suffering, his death, and Peter is going after Jesus. In Mark and in Luke, what's Peter doing? He's arguing with the other disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom to come. It's going to be me. Look at me. Like Not to mention that Peter, like the rest of the disciples, was unwilling to take the place of the servant at the Passover supper, the last supper, and to wash people's feet. And so Jesus has to do it. And now we see a different Peter. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say as we begin to read this letter, we see that Peter's perspective on leadership is now the same as Jesus. And Peter here is a different man from the Peter of the Gospels. His teaching is vastly different what we have expected of him in the gospel accounts. His teaching is also different from much that is taught about leadership today, even in Christian circles. In these verses, we see a very clear link to the teaching of Jesus in the gospels. I think a teaching that Peter actually became to able to embrace himself and is now beginning to teach others. And Peter's words are not just to the elders, nor even to leaders. When you look at it, these are the words that are addressed to all of us. And we should all listen carefully, looking to the Holy Spirit to make meaning and application very clear in our minds, but also in our lives. First, Peter addresses the elders. The existence of the elders as spiritual Leaders goes back in the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Times where up to 70 elders were appointed, divinely empowered to assist Moses in leading the Israelites. Elders um, persisted throughout Israel's history. You read in Deuteronomy, First and Second Kings, in Ezra. And it goes into the New Testament times where they're mentioned in conjunction with the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees in the book of Matthew and the book of Acts. As we do our history, what we see is that elders emerge as the highest authority in the New Testament church. They're assisted by deacons. We read that in Philippians and 1 Timothy, Titus and James. Elders of the church first appear in Acts 11, verse 30, where the money was collected for the poor of Judea and they were sent to the elders. In Acts 14, uh, 23, we're told that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the churches founded on their first missionary journey. Acts 15, the apostles and the elders of the church met in Jerusalem, but it became to know what we now know as the Jerusalem Council to clarify the gospel as it related to the Gentile converts. And so throughout the New Testament, the church was ruled by a, 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 a series of elders. And when Peter addresses the elders in our text, he is addressing those who have been divinely appointed and entrusted with the spiritual leadership of the church. And I believe that God has put in the heart of every Christian, and if you're a believer here this morning, I believe he has put this in your heart to serve others, to bless others, 
to encourage others. There's a desire in all of our hearts that cries out, I want to be used by God. And don't, don't you? I just want to be used by God. And I think that desire is a work of the Spirit that He has given you. He's given you a gift. He has given you a calling so that that desire can be fulfilled. Peter said even in chapter 4, if you go back to it, that some people have speaking gifts and some people have serving gifts. So likewise, some within God's family are called to be elders, overseers. And this, that, that is who Peter specifically addresses right now in this passage. He writes, to the elders among you. He says what they do and how they are to serve and what kind of tone and atmosphere that they're to set and what kind of attitude that they're supposed to have. And it's important for you to know that this for a couple of reasons. Because what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to help us recognize the right kind of pastors, the right kind of leaders, and to keep us from the wrong kind and the, those who could actually harm us. And so whether you're an elder or not, this passage also shows us some of the hard attitudes where we all are to serve God. And there's much here that applies to all of us, and so don't mentally check out this morning thinking that this has nothing to do with you because it's actually quite the opposite. See, in the New Testament, believers were called God's flock. In each city or town or village, these believers would gather around in the name of Jesus. They're not gathered around the teachings of a certain theologian or famous Bible teacher. They weren't gathered. And when they did, they got rebuked because that's what Paul did, right, to the Corinthian church, that dumpster fire of a church. They weren't gathered around impressive, charismatic personality, unless, of course, you were in Corinthians, and maybe that's what happened. They weren't drawn to a program offered by the church, but they gathered around the person of Jesus. And in each local area, a few people were to shepherd the flock. That's their job. That's their call. They were to care for people as a shepherd. They would care for, uh, as a shepherd would simply care for the sheep. The church was established by apostles, and it wasn't this massive, complex hierarchy, but layers and layers of bureaucracy and impressive titles. It was shepherds and the flock. It was elders and those under their care. So in this passage, Peter addresses the elders or the shepherds of these local churches, and first he says, take care of the people. Don't harm them. Don't neglect them. And so we're called to take care of people. Peter writes, be shepherds of God's flock. Elders are to be shepherds. They're to do things that a shepherd would do, to have a shepherd's heart, a shepherd's approach to people. Jesus told Peter, if you love me, feed and tend my sheep. So feeding the sheep is the elder's first responsibility. And another part of their task is to tend, to take care of the sheep. Peter said to shepherd your flock that is under your care. And look out for these people. Protect them. Guide them. Look to their spiritual welfare. This verse goes on saying, watching over them or exercising oversight. And so we as pastors, we need to be, or as elders, as pastors, we need to be aware of people and their needs. John chapter 10, Jesus said, the good shepherd is concerned about the life of the sheep. 
Why? Because the thief comes to kill, destroy, and he came that he might have life and have it more abundantly. And being a good shepherd is being concerned about others thriving and flourishing and about others experiencing this life to the full. In John 10, 11, Jesus describes how good shepherds put the interests of the sheep above his own. He said that the hired hand is not concerned about the sheep per se, right? Because if a wolf comes, he'll run away to protect himself. But a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And of course, Jesus, you know, he was talking about himself as the good shepherd. But we are to be that kind of shepherds too. Paul demonstrated this concern for those under his care. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I face daily the presence of my concern for all the churches. He cared about people. He cared about how they're doing. Ezekiel 34, the Lord says, shepherds should not take care, shepherds should, should not shepherds take care of the flock. And then what he goes on is he begins to accuse the leaders of Israel of poor shepherding. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, he writes. And this is what we are not to be like. We are to be faithful shepherds. It's the job of the pastors or the elders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. You know, I'll just say this. One can teach privately, but it's very difficult to lead privately. Because when you think about it, leadership itself is a public and visible task. Not just in times of persecution, but always. And those who are leaders make themselves vulnerable to attack by simply being visible in leadership. The buck stops somewhere. And Peter therefore urges them not to shrink back, but rather to step forward and carry out their God-given calling in faith. So in one sense, all of us are shepherds to some people when you think about it. Think about it. We all have people entrusted to us. We are to do all that we can to help those who are under our care flourish in their walk with Jesus. We're not to abuse or bruise people, but to take good care of them. So let me ask you the question, who are the people that God has entrusted to you? Is it your spouse? Is it your children, your grandchildren? Is it your parents? Is it your friends? Is it some of your brothers or sisters in the church family? Children, youth. You see, we all are to have the heart of a shepherd towards these people that God has entrusted in our care. Secondly, we are to willingly serve God and to do it eagerly. Again, the text says, shepherd the flock of God, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, but eager to serve. You know, you know just as God loves a cheerful giver, he loves a cheerful and eager server. Right? And, and that is the way we are actually to serve others. Psalms 100 tells us to serve the Lord with gladness. And so any kind of ministry 
when you think about it, every kind of ministry has some hard things in it. It's just, a, it's just ministry. And our biggest disappointments are usually people. Right? Can I get an amen? Like, I want to I know that I'm not alone and that I'm not just venting my feelings. Right? I'll preach it, right? See, when dealing with people, the discouragements, there's discouraging results at times. Pastor Barber, the, the pastor of 44 years at Calvary Temple, downtown Winnipeg, always said this, people come, people go, people come back again. I share that with the staff all the time. People come, people go, people come back again. And it can take great perseverance, but we're not to feel sorry for ourselves or to serve with a chip on our shoulder. We're to be excited about serving. We're to be glad to serve. And that's actually the attitude that we're trying to, to build into our servant leaders here at Seoul. You see it in our team huddle before the gathering starts. And this also applies to whether you're serving as an elder or a deacon or leading a life group or teaching children's or youth ministry or shoveling snow or stacking chairs or cleaning the bathrooms or welcoming or serving people coffee, which will be happening shortly. <laughs> We're almost normal, whatever that is. And I love it when I hear that people want to serve in the community. Like Jesus is our example. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own will. So he volunteered to go to the cross for us. So when you lay down your own life, you, have never, uh, you never have to feel like a victim. It's, it's great to help to keep this mindset that we have chosen. We have made a decision to serve, to love, and to pay the price. Because that's part of serving. And nobody is making us do this. And third, we don't do it for selfish or worldly motives. What does Peter say? He says, do it because you're willing, not greedy for money. He points out the danger that some figured out how to use the ministry to make money and to do it for that reason. And today, yes, today pastors can make money selling books. My wife keeps saying, you need to write a book. I say, nobody's going to read it, so why worth it? Really? Everything's been written. We make, guys make astronomical money from fees for going and speaking engagements, or they collect money on television and radio programs. Now, is it wrong? No. But what's your motive? What's your motive? And actually, when you think about it, these opportunities to make money really are not available to most of us. But we can have an attitude that you know, I'm on the worship team for my own fulfillment, right? I'm on it for how it makes me feel. Or I'm leading this life group, so I'm going to appear like, like I know what I'm leading and know what I'm doing, and I'm going to lurk a certain way to other people. And so when you actually think about it, Peter is really wise here, because we can find ourselves serving, but not really for the right reasons. We're sort of seeking some sort of gain for ourselves in this process. But if you do ministry for, for what you will presently gain from people, 
In other words, if you're looking for people to acknowledge you, say, oh, you're so good, blah, 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 what's actually going to happen is you're going to end up incredibly bitter. You're going to have these thoughts like, you know, I tried to start this group and nobody came. I suggest we all do this and nobody listened and nobody responded. I, I did this for these people and it was like they didn't even notice. I, I got no thank you, no appreciation. What's the matter with people anyway? I do this week after week and nobody else ever lifts a finger. And thinking like that shows that our motives are not right. And fourth, we're to influence people by example, not force. Peter, Peter says, not lording over those entrusted to you, but proving to be examples to the flock. I like that. Not lord. I, I have a fat guy, sorry, um, excessively overweight person, sitting on his little throne and lording over people in my mind every time I read that passage. Just, just an angry little person. Biblical eldership is a soft leadership. It's not weak, but it's not authoritarian. It's not demanding, but it speaks God's word with authority. It's not supposed to be a domineering kind of leadership. Why? Jesus is our example, and he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. If the chief shepherd is that way, we, we all need to be that way as well. People that you care for are entrusted to you. You don't own them. They're not yours to dominate. They're not yours to manipulate. They belong to God, and God has simply entrusted them to you. And where the Bible gives freedom, we need to learn to give freedom. We have a tendency of giving rules and regulations and legalism. Francis Schaeffer once described legalism as being like a coat that fits too tight it hurts every time you move. And when we are under leaders of any kind who lord it over you, it can literally feel like that. However, as you serve in the body, watch out for the tendency to take charge in a way that actually squelches people. You know, sometimes we get a little bit of authority and we can actually squeeze the life out of people and not even realize it. Instead of pushing people around, we are to be examples. There's nothing that you can do as an elder, as a Christian, that can substitute for being a good example. Parents, there's nothing you can do for your kids when you think about it. There's, there's no sports you help them to be good at. There's nothing that you can buy for them. There is no education that you can give them that will substitute for you being a good example. And for elders, there's no amount of Bible knowledge or skill in preaching that can substitute for being a good and godly example. Fifth, your service to others. Your service to others will be greatly rewarded. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now again, remember, these are... Pastors under pressure. These are churches under pressure. Elders under pressure. People, the average Christian under pressure. And Peter reminds the shepherds of the local churches that the chief shepherd will reward them greatly. 
And the crown of glory is not just for the elders, but it's for all who love Jesus and are faithful to what he has called them to do. We all report to Jesus. We all serve Jesus, and it is from Jesus that we will receive our crown of glory. Jesus highly values the work of taking care of people in his flock. Peter calls it the crown of glory that will never fade away. We don't really know exactly what that is, but it's something so great that it's beyond our ability to understand the Bible, especially when it begins to use the word glory. So the glory that you will receive for serving Jesus in any way will be beyond your wildest imaginations. And there's nothing wrong with serving God because you want a reward from Him. The problem is not that we want a reward for doing the Lord's work. The problem is that we want a reward here and now from other people. That's when the problem comes in. And when we have that kind of attitude, it creates all sorts of heart problems when we look for our rewards too eagerly, or even too early, if I could put it that way. Maybe we're saying in our heads, we've been doing this for years, God seems to have forgotten about me. He hasn't forgotten. He already told us that when the glory comes, when the chief shepherd appears, so if you're looking for it early, your reward, you're going to grow disillusioned. Sixth, Peter had a message to the younger folk in the church. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I like this verse. God has called the elders to a humble manner of serving the flock. And Peter demonstrated a humble spirit in the way he wrote this. Remember, he has this high position as an apostle, and yet he writes to the elders among you, and he says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. I like what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He says, it will always be our wisdom to put ourselves as much as possible into the position of those whom we address. It's a pity for anyone ever to seem to preach down to people. It's always better to be a near, as, it should, it's always better to be as nearly as possible on the same level as they are. Peter goes on and says in the same way, you younger men respond to your elders in a humble manner. And there's probably some, there's, there's actually a number of uh, specific ideas as to why he says it this way. And it's quite possible that he was getting news that the younger guys were a little bit eager to take over. You know, they would challenge the leadership, they would challenge everything else in that way. I don't know, we don't really know. But all he says is to be subject to your elders and to be humble. And I think if we desire to grow as Christians... If you desire for the church to be effective, if you desire a healthy church, then your role is to follow consistently and obey what the elders of the church teach and counsel you. And this is hard for us to do in our culture because we're so individualistic. Right? Because we all know better. But you and I will be so much more healthier when we listen to the instructions of church leadership. When we listen to them. Peter makes it very clear that the attitude of humility is for everyone. And in order to do this, you and I must, as Peter writes, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. 
literally make humility your garment so that you will be a good follower of the great shepherd. Cover uh, everything you say, everything you do with humility. Elders, young men, young women, all of us in a healthy church, everyone will relate to one another when we have a spirit of humility. I'm here to serve. Because when you think about it, we all live on this spectrum from humble to proud. Every sentence you speak, every social media post, every text, every phone call, everything you share with other believers needs to be wrapped with humility. Think about that for a moment. Clothe yourself with this. And instead of wearing the clothing of arrogance or condensation, uh, I was say condensation. That was a pretty wet comment, but I don't know. Condescension. Thank you, that was a dad joke. We have to put on our clothes of humility. And, and, and I think what we have to understand is that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility lets God become the center of our lives, and it leaves room for others with us. And humility permits you to accept help from God, but also others. I have to confess, over the last, what, 18 years this church has been, I've been surrounded by a phenomenal leadership team called the Steering Committee. The people that I submit to. The people that can speak into my life. The people I can bounce ideas off who say I'm absolutely crazy. The people who keep me in charge. I get an amen on the crazy. Thanks, Deb. The people who keep me in charge, but the people who I love, that I would lay down my life for, and people who have demonstrated that they would do the same for me. That's a healthy church. I want to speak directly this morning. So usually gets. I'm, I want to put my inside voice now out on the table. When we look at Scripture, we see that pride is demonic. Well, humility is godly. Pride pulls hell up. But humility invites heaven down. Pride is natural. But humility is supernatural. Pride is like a demon. But humility is the spirit that casts out that demon. Pride is how we war with God. And humility is how we worship God. Pride can humiliate you, but only you can humble you. Pride is a destination. Humility is a direction. Pride is the cost, the cause for most relational problems. Humility is the cure for most relational problems. 
It would be an understatement to say that there have been strong feelings and belief about our recent going on in Ottawa and at the borders. I am not troubled by Christians having strong opinions. I have my own. But it has troubled me the way that many so-called believers communicate their convictions without humility and grace. Believers have maligned one another and the church of Jesus and devoured one another with charges and countercharges, with a glaring lack of humility. And when we feel strongly about our positions on the Bible or an issue that does not exempt us from clothing ourselves with humility when writing or talking about these things, Whatever we have to say to another brother or sister or to the body of Christ, they ought to be able to say it, it came with humility. And when it comes to relationships, when you have two people filled with pride, you will always have a battle. When one person is proudful, the other one is humble, usually the outcome is abuse. But when both people approach the relationship with being humble, the relationship actually becomes a blessing. And so when people come into Soul Sanctuary, they ought to have a sense and be able to sense the presence of God here when we gather together and the love that we have for one another and the humility that we have for one another. And this is not some sort of false kind of humility where you can't have an opinion. Peter is saying, come at everything and everybody with humility. And so these are the attitudes of heart that please God. These are the attitudes of the heart that the elders are supposed to have. And all of us in some way are going to be growing in. And so you pray for your elders to excel in these things. Pray for us as staff members. Pray for us as steering community leaders. Pray for all of our servant leaders. Pray for your elders to excel Pray for us to be good shepherds on staff. Then also ask the Lord to give you these attitudes of heart towards those people that you have care over. Whether it's your family, whether it's serving in other areas of this this wonderful church. Pray. Finally, you probably have heard somebody say, well, that guy doesn't have a care in the world. But is it true? Ah, not at all. We all have things that we're concerned about to one degree or another. In fact, the carefree person is most likely covering up a host of cares by their carefree demeanor. And even if we're not wringing our hands in worry, we all have things in our lives that we're concerned about, right? We do. The Apostle Paul, for instance, spoke of the daily pressures upon me of the concern for all the churches. He cared all the time. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, you're probably well aware of this verse. Cast all your cares upon, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. As a matter of fact, many Christians know this verse by heart. They they claim it in their lives, right? We even share it with other people, especially in stressful situations. And I think it's a wonderful verse, but unfortunately, I think we often apply this verse apart from the context in particular. Apart from verse 6 to which it's linked to and very dependent upon for us to understand. 
Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your care, anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Think of this passage, this verse, really, these two verses in, in, in three sections. The command to humble yourself, the procedure, casting all your cares on him, and finally, the motivation. This command to humble ourselves. God is telling us that he's not going to let us get away with arrogant independence. Sorry, I thought that was going to fall for a second. We're going to get away with his arrogant independence without his personal opposition. Why? Let me suggest two things. First, because the proud person dishonors God. We see that throughout Scripture. Pride, whatever. It's dishonoring towards God. The proud person fails to acknowledge that, that he or she has uh, anything that they have to accomplish is ultimately dependent upon the Lord. Proud person says, no, I'm going to do it all myself. It dishonors God. Secondly, the proud person will also dishonor and hurt other people and even ruin his or her own life. And eventually, pride results in a fall, whether it's a person, a church, or even nations. And so this command in 1 Peter 5, 6 occurs in a context where leaders are being warned against lording over the flock, where young men are exhorted to submit themselves to others, and everybody is challenged to clothe themselves in humility. And so arrogance is harmful, and it's a hindrance to effective ministry to the body of Christ. Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Humble yourselves is not perhaps the best translation here of the Greek text. You know, this is a command. It points to responsibility for us to obey and to respond to. But that verb there in the, in the Greek text would be better understood as being be humbled. Allow yourself to be humbled. So what does it exactly mean to allow yourself to be humble? You've got to remember that God wants to bring us to a place of humility, which is the place of God dependence, rather than arrogant independence. And the reason for this is because the dependence on the Lord honors God and is the place of blessing and fruitfulness. We have learned that the key subject of 1 Peter is suffering. We know that. We, the word suffer is this concept of suffering occurs over 15 times in the book. Peter sees suffering. He sees trials as one of the necessary elements of life. It's just going to come that way. So what does suffering do? As a loving father, God uses suffering or the experiences of tests and trials in our life as tools, what? To get our attention to cause us to grow, to grow closer to him. And so suffering, when you think about it, is designed to turn us from depending on our own human strategies to living by faith in him. It forces us. It forces our faith to the surface. It really does. It puts to work and purifies it from a life of, uh, of dependence on ourselves and our own solutions, like you know, possessing the details of life and doing all that, to putting it on him. And so suffering helps us see our weaknesses and our insufficiency of our strategies so that we will respond to God's greatness. Now look at the other hand, under the, uh, the other phrase, under the mighty hand of God. Again, two points, two, two notes about the word under. Under draws attention to who we are. We are the creatures and the servants of this sovereign creator. 
And regardless of how sovereign people may feel or how much power they think they can weld, they don't control their own destiny because all of us are under the sovereign rule of God. All of us. Isaiah 22.22, the prophet has an interesting and sobering portrait of a man's puniness in contrast to who God's greatness is, which demonstrates how foolish it is for us to put our trust in man, which includes our own devices by which we trust man, right? We want to seek our own understanding, our own meaning in life. It's all about me, 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 and yet we are to be under the mighty hand of God who also stresses who God is. Like I said earlier, he's the sovereign one, the one who rules over the universe, which certainly includes your personal world and my personal world. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Isaiah goes on, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This is who God is. And so where are we? We are on earth, under God's heaven, living on his footstool, under his authority. And this reminds us of our own insufficiency to handle life on our own. God's hand is mighty, it's powerful, it's able to lead and direct our lives and to meet our needs. This then is a command to submit, to allow God to be God and to do what he deems necessary regardless of how things may appear to us or how difficult they are. And then you have that phrase that he may lift you up in due time. And this is the purpose that Peter has in mind that he's trying to get across to that. And I'm not sure exactly what his purpose was, but certainly it includes lifting us up from various places of suffering and persecution, the pain and the heartache that we may face in this life. And sometimes that lifting up may occur in this life as we experience God's encouragement, as we experience his deliverance or success in our work or success in our ministries, but sometimes not until life to come. And so no matter how long God Delays, we are never to attempt to take matters into our own hands and to seek to lift ourselves up by our own human strategies, our own self-protection. We're to allow God's humbling process to have its transforming effect in making us like Jesus. The lifting up process is first of all a humbling process. The way up is always the way down. The way of death, dying to self-control is the way of life. The way of becoming a humble servant who gives his life for others as Jesus did for us. That phrase, in due time, it brings uh, the element of God's timetable here. We need to learn to wait on the Lord. In the pride of leaning on our own strategies, we often run ahead. We want what we think we need right now, and it's our impatience. You know, we, we turn to, to get our own schemes. We devise our own things just so we can get it now. We can't wait. The procedure to all this is found in the next verse where it says, cast all your anxiety upon him. I like the description of the verb here, to cast. It's, it's, it's like... Yeah, you're using garments on a beast of burden, right? You're putting something on a horse. You're putting something on a, a donkey. And so really the point here is that we are to move from the sphere of trusting our own resources. You know, the resources and strategies for life that we use 
to actually resting in God and his resources. That word anxiety here is quite interesting. Here it's used of any and all cares that we might have, whether godly concerns or anxious worry. Do you hear that? Any and all cares of what we have, whether it is godly concerns or anxious worry. So rather than simply casting all your anxiety, the translation really is the whole of your anxiety. How many of you are anxious? Right? And I think this drives home the point even more, even more forcefully that the emphasis in this passage is not casting uh, each, on each individual care, but on casting the whole of one's life on Jesus, lock, stock, and barrel. Best picture I can think of is running up and jumping on the horse. Not taking your coat off, not taking your shoes or shirt, but man, just casting yourself. And it's the idea of coming to a place in life where we're realizing that Jesus is complete, his complete sufficiency and our insufficiency is there face to face. And we realize that we really can't handle any part of life apart from Jesus. Then we cast the whole of life on him. We're to give it all to him, not just our burden bearer, but as our master, as our provider, as our savior. The whole of life is to be cast on him. But how do we do that? And that's where point three is, the motivation. Because he cares for you. He cares for you. That verb cares is a general truth about God. It reminds us that God is always constantly caring about us. It serves to remind us of the unchanging faithfulness and the love of God. Life changes, and and it seems so terribly fickle at times, but God's care is steadfast and unfailing, and it renews itself every morning. And while the Bible reveals a number of reasons for suffering and the trials of life, still... In almost all of them, God is seeking to show us areas where we need to trust him more. Areas where we are in reality living by faith in our circumstances and in our own schemes for handling life. And it just may be, if we're going to be going through some deep waters right now, maybe that is you, that God is seeking to reveal areas where you have been leaning on your own resources, where you're trying to run your own life. And it may be that we're trying to find our own primary satisfaction in something other than God, but he's got your attention. And so we need to learn to cast our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. He cares more for us than we care about ourselves. And what we worry and fret about is what we feel to be the most important. What we worry and fret about is what we don't wish to commit to him because we actually trust ourselves more than we trust God. In times of suffering, in times of persecution and affliction, What greater assurance and comfort is there from knowing that not only that God is good, but he's in control. Think about that. He cares for us. So Peter's leadership has radically changed from the time he first followed Jesus. I'm not sure our thinking's changed. We think a leader is one who is confident and self-assured and assertive. 
And Peter tells us a leader is humble and a servant of others. As, you know, Christians tend to measure leaders in terms of their success. But when I look to the scriptures, I see them measure them in terms of their faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Success is not the test of leadership. Suffering is. And I think this text brings us face to face with choices. Peter set down three primary commands. Elders are to shepherd the flock by exercising, exercising leadership in a vastly different way that unbelievers lead. Young people are not to be characterized by their independence and rebellion, but actually by submission to elders. And the saints are not to be self-seeking, self-serving, and self-sufficient, but humble in their relationship to God and each other. And I think all three commands indicate that we got to think and act in a way that is dramatically different from the unbelievers around us. And each of these commands actually confronts us individuals with a choice. Are we going to obey or disobey? So Peter, in this passage, challenges us to commitment and to action. So I want to leave you with this question this morning. What is your choice going to be? Father in heaven, we know that you are mighty and just. We believe in your word and we thank you for providing for us. We thank you for knowing me even though I can't begin to comprehend your glory. But what I do know is that we need your love, we need your care, we need your protection, we need your blessing, we need your grace, we need your forgiveness. God, we need your presence. Without you, we have nothing of lasting significance. So God, may we pray for a spirit of humility. Help us to know that we are not the reason for our own success, our own happiness and blessings. So God, keep us humble when we talk with others. We need others to see a reflection of you and not a reflection of ourselves. And so we come to you today casting our cares, casting ourselves upon you. And we choose to believe in your word and we trust that you are working behind the scenes be, uh, on, on our behalf. And we are so careful, God, to give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What song are you guys going to sing? Goodness of God. Stand with me, please. They're going to be singing the goodness of God. If you want to stay and sing, great. And join them as they sing you out. If, you want to, if you're able-bodied and able to stack chairs eight high, we'd appreciate that as well. Thank you for coming. May God bless you. May his hand be upon you. What's the one word I want you to think about when you walk out of here today? Awesome. 
Awesome. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Soul sanctuary, may the hope of Christ overshadow you in all that you do. May you live out your hope in Jesus daily as you walk through this short time that we have on earth. May you be humbled at the task before you of following Jesus and leading others to know him better. May you love those that God has put under your care, giving yourself away for their good. And finally, soul, when the trials and storms of this life come to you, may you cast your anxiety upon him. Him who is able to bear them all for you. Now go.